Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Let's go ahead and get started with our questions. <laughs> kind of makes me wish we could know Davis make cocoa bombs instead. <laughs> For anyone who saw last week, Sarah is back in the studio with us today. Uh, David Thomas, who'd been with us uh, last month filling in for, he was actually live streaming from his parents' house today making cocoa bombs with his mom. A hot so, chocolate yeah. and marshmallows and sprinkles, and it looked a lot more fun than... Uh, well, than technical glitches. Now, of course, yeah. this is far more fun than drinking hot chocolate. If you don't really have a drink and a snack, so it's just hot chocolate, you can grab one of those right now, but we're going to go ahead and get started with our first question from last month, and then we'll get to your recording ones. Okay, well, we had a question from Thomas Perkins that he wanted to know what your thoughts are for a realistic and long-term solution for mitigating radiation dangers for space colonization. Uh, that's always kind of a tricky thing in the sense that we have the... The core issue with radiation in space is that there's no atmosphere blocking it out, but it is always about thickness. Magnetic fields can help with ionized particles, for instance, but magnetic fields like the Earth have do not in any way stop gamma radiation, right? Oxygen stops gamma radiation, hydrogen stops gamma radiation, nitrogen stops gamma radiation, stuff in between it and you stops it. Uh, beta radiation can be stopped by a magnetic field because it's just an electron or a positron, um, but by and large, Anything that we can do with a spaceship, we can, you know, in terms of a planet, we can replicate the spaceship. In this case, we just need to think of a hull. As you get bigger, heavier spaceships, because you're not building tiny things uh, held together by tin foil, the square mat, the, sorry, the square cube law lets you start having thicker shielding without it being proportionally larger chunk of your budget. And you can also start doing things like putting your stuff that's radiation proof, like water, on the outside. So you put all your storage tanks for water in your floor of like a spinning spaceship. That's more or less how you get around it, is you put an electromagnetic field around the ship if you want to, but mostly you just put in an awful lot of mass between you and the outside. Okay, well, it seems that uh, we have a lot of folks joining us on the main page. That is where the live stream is streaming from at the moment. Mm -hmm. And we have a question from Medievalists. If we aimed a probe to another star, should we not choose a star that is trailing behind our own system? Wouldn't that be faster than sending it to Alpha Centauri? Alpha Centauri is not part of our group uh, in terms of things that we formed with naturally. When this system formed, we had some stars we were moving with. Some of those were still moving with, others were kind of intersecting. And Alpha Centauri is not one of those, so it does actually have a speed relative to us that's fairly significant. But to be honest, <clears throat> it's not that much compared to what the distance is. If you want to get you know the probe there fairly quickly it's the best one to send it to, I'd still say, or Proxima Centauri anyway, um, but about the same difference. But really, any of the stars in our local area, none of them are moving that fast that a space probe that could get there in a lifetime or two uh, wouldn't more or less ignore that speed. It's not that big of a difference. 
if you're trying to get one there at the current speed of Virgil, yes, it matters, but there's no point in sending a probe to a star that's 70,000 years getting there uh, when it's only four light years away. Just wait, and in sometime in the next 70,000 years, you get better technology of getting stuff there. <laughs> so we have a, a question here with a super chat, and I had the name and it went away, so maybe we'll come back to that one. <laughs> um, we have a question here from Michael McKesney. And he says, Isaac, in the past, you've said you don't want to go into space yourself. But if you were offered a seat on the all-civilian Inspiration4 space launch, would you accept? Before you answer, the answer is only if you take me with you. Only, yeah, well, only if I take my wife with me, which is, says it has to be fairly safe. Uh, <laughs> I am not super anxious to get into space uh, any more than I am to go on a cruise ship. Those are hobbies of the folks show. I might turn out that I really like them. I was never anxious to go whitewater rafting. We went to, what was it, August? I loved it. I loved it and I was half blind the entire time because I couldn't bring any kind of special glass along and I'm like 2200 vision. So it was a lot of fun. If you have never gone whitewater rafting, go whitewater rafting, but safely. Um, if you haven't gone to space before, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy it or not. You probably ask me the astronauts, they all say they love it. So it's something hopefully in about 30, 40 years will actually be no more expensive than an expensive cruise line ticket. But even then, we're looking forward to the day when it's no more expensive than an airline ticket plan our summer vacation for 20 years out yeah you know so the summer vacation for 2041 <laughs> sounds good okay i'll be 61 then i might like space slow gravity <laughs> <laughs> warani says how far do you think we will reach into space this century in most of our time spans i, I don't know um, if he's looking at my time span or your time span but yeah, yeah, I suppose technically if you wanted to get to Andromeda this century, it's hypothetically possible from your own relative time perspective. Uh, you just have to go really, really fast. Um, this century, I would expect us to actually have a decent chance of launching an interstellar ship. I wouldn't expect it to arrive this century, but I wouldn't put it past it. Probably a probe, a manned vessel is probably a little bit further ahead. As to us, if by the end of the century we don't have a base on the moon, and a permanent, significant base on the moon. And we haven't mined an asteroid or two and haven't set up several space stations that have people on them pretty much all the time. Then odds are pretty good that sort of thing isn't happening because it turns out to be technically impossible. We can never really rule that out until we've done it, but that was what I expect this century. I, really, I can't imagine it taking longer than that. Matt333 says, Could you create a video about that kind of intelligent alien that could have a higher level of consciousness? We're actually doing an episode on sentience um, coming up in, what, middle of middle of March. It might be one of the ones that's been playing up in the background, assuming they have been. Um, and uh, I don't know if the image slash really has been up there. Um, trying to figure out what the line is between things like sapiens, higher consciousness, lesser consciousness. We even covered the term in the, in the episode is, uh, called Pythiant, just to kind of bridge the gap between sentience and sapiens. Um Trying to talk about something that's kind of tricky because we don't have any examples to look at, but it would be interesting to speculate on what it would be like if something had a higher than human level of consciousness. Um, but it's so hard to say. Hmm. I, I am going to call out this one. It's a super chat from Curator Callister, and thank you for your donation. He says, Hey, Isaac, I just wanted to let you know that your content has really helped me through quarantine. We've had quite a few friends that ended up in that situation this year, <laughs> and uh, glad that it's helping. His question is, what are the top three most realistic sci-fi works of fiction? I'm imagining he's watching quite a few of them at the moment. Yeah. Hmm. I guess it would depend on if you're going by books, movies, or TV. 
<coughs> and it's going to be a different answer for each of them. It also depends on what you mean by realism. Your classic top three sci-fi novel series pretty much always pop up on there as the favorites. So Isaac Asimov's Foundation, Frank Herbert's Dune, and Orson Scott Card's Endor's Game. Um, the, in terms of realism, they each have beautiful realism in certain aspects, but then they have really horrible flaws. Like, the whole concept of, of the Foundation is psychohistory, a math that can predict the future in broad strokes. That is just not possible. Right? That violates all sorts of basic mathematical and physical concepts. Then you got Dune, an entire series based off the idea that a civilization that has anti-gravity and fashion light travel cannot bring water to a planet when water is the most common molecule in the universe and would probably be hanging out in the outskirts of every single solar system. Uh, then we've got uh, Orson Scott Carl's game, which is the idea that you could run a military complex strategy across tons of systems by using um, a, was it, a 14-year-old <laughs> and a bunch of other teenagers. So sliding scales of realism. Um most realistic television show, it really wouldn't be Star Trek. It used to always be say Star Wars, Star Trek, and Trek was the more sweeper one. I really don't see the basis for that. Um, but you get a certain amount of realism on so many of them. I'd say movie-wise, Sunshine, minus the last 30 minutes, and the basic premise. Very good movie, for instance, from 2007. The Moon, 2009, that was a very good one. But we go through all of them. Um, Interstellar has its points. Most of them, though, they've just got core fundamental flaws to them that maybe has to just call them out as very scientific. Skylar Reek says, What would a Card Shift 3 civilization in another galaxy have affect us politically if we discovered them tomorrow? Um, if we discovered a Card Shift 3 civilization in another galaxy, I, I suppose it is important that it be in another galaxy because it was in our galaxy. A Card Shift 3 civilization, for those who don't know, is a galaxy spanning empire. One that's not only settled every solar system, but Dyson sphered every single star. So you can't see any stars, you know, night sky objects in your galaxy if you have gone Carl Chef 3, except maybe other galaxies. We can see Andromeda with a naked eye, for instance. Um, one that was actually in another galaxy, like say Andromeda, or even at all, you know that that civilization was ancient before we were building pyramids. You know that that's even ignoring light, like you know that that thing was millions of years old when that light left you, and they were already millions of years old. That changes your perspective, but at the same time, I don't know that it really do much more than shock us for a little bit because it confirms certain options. Also, because I know someone's going to bring it up, redoing. I do know that in books three and beyond, he does say that there's those sandworm trout that uh, encapsulate the water on the desert planet and sink it down in there, but. This has to be consistent for book one, I think, but that's what counts. So while you're talking about shows that you've seen, uh, Wargiver, thank you for your contribution. He wants to know if you've ever seen Ghost in the Shell. The, the movie, the cartoon movie I've seen, um, I've not read the manga. I've not seen the newer version. It's got, uh, uh, I can't remember her name in it. I've seen the, the old cartoon. How realistic cartoon do you 90s. think of the technology in it is? Um... A lot of it really is. In some ways, that's one of the more realistic uh, animes that I've seen, which, to be fair, I've not seen very many. Um, basic concept there being you've got cyborgs and people can hop around bodies. We see a similar thing with the Altered Carbon series, is that the mind is moving around digitally or not and can be manipulated. If you can move a mind around and you can set signals around to it, then you should be able to manipulate it digitally as well. And so 
that whole series kind of looks at the question of how malleable is this concept we call personality, uh, how solid of an object is you. And that, of course, is something we're going to get to find out uh, in this next century or two, I'm quite sure. And hopefully the answer will be much less dystopian than we see in, in, in shows like those. <laughs> Randy Smith says, if any of our new nearby stars go nova and aim a gamma ray burst at us, how far underground would you have to be to escape at least the radiation? Uh, in your basement. In your basement. Gamma ray bursts, I mean, it depends on how tight it is. If our sun was suddenly a supernova candidate that was able to do a gamma ray burst, a pulsar, um, then, yeah, we'd have to be pretty deep underground to survive that direct hit. Uh, but it, it is still a cone that widens out. Anything that's even four light years away, it's going to rip the atmosphere off in terms of ionizing it, but you yourself would not be killed by the radiation even just under a meter of Earth. So. So can we make an entire galaxy a ship by building an engine around the black hole in the center of the Milky Way? I wouldn't do it that way. Um, it's possible, but uh, you got to keep in mind the black hole in the center of the galaxy is not really the, the thing to which the galaxy is wrapped around. It just happens to be where that black hole would tend to naturally be at as a very big object that uh, would form more commonly there. Um, the galaxy outmasses that black hole by a factor of about 100,000 to 1. So don't think of it as too much of an anchor. Um, not a bad place to be dumping mass into to try to push a galaxy along, but it's not really a good gravitational anchor in of itself. You want to move a galaxy, you want to move large chunks of it that are gravitationally bound to each other. You don't really want to leave bits of it behind. Um, and uh, in that kind of context, uh, see the Fleet of Stars episode for a better look at that, but you really want to be trying to move the whole thing, each star is a Chicago thruster kind of situation. Or a black hole-based type engine. I think you kind of elaborated on this question from Merv Johnson already, uh, but thank you, Merv, for your uh, contribution here. And he says, back in the Clark Tech episodes, you mentioned different types of mass, inertial, active gravity, passive gravity. Can you elaborate a little bit more on those here? Sure. Um, this cup, uh, which... Going to make for an interesting example. This cup that Jason and Christina bought me when they were down at Disneyland some years back um, has mass that is inertial, gravitational, and active and passive gravitational. If we think of these things, we say the mass of them is all the same because they seem to act as the same quantity to us in a naive sense. But if I want to move this cup, I have to push on it and something resists. To give this cup inertia, I have to push on it and something resists. If I were to double this cup or drink more of the coffee out of it, it would be easier to push. That's a notional mass, how much it resists being pushed on by you know accelerating forces. Active gravitational mass is how much it pulls other objects. So like it's exerting a little bit of a pull of gravity on me right now, right? It yanks at me. And then there's passive gravitational mass, which is how much it gets yanked on by me. And we have no real reason to think that these should be the same quantities but they seem to be. Right? We figure they got to be linked together at a very core level, but what that actually is to us at a theoretical level, we don't know yet, but they are three separate quantities. If Why they are linked together, presumably there is a good reason for why they are the same. We don't know it yet, but they are three separate quantities. How much this thing resists being pushed, right? how much it pulls on the Earth, and how much the Earth pulls on it, or beyond it, and vice versa. Those are your three types of mass. Your guys, Verat says, so my question is relating to how gravity stretches space and time mm -hmm. in relation to distance growing between galaxies. 
Is it possible that the actual distance is not increasing, but that the density, and I just lost the rest of it. So make up whatever you want for the rest of the ending. <laughs> Do you remember who it was? I think I might have it in the chat. Gazrat. So unfortunately today, a couple of the folks who helped us out on the live stream are not available today. Although... Uh, they all popped on. We have oh, uh, the owl installerator. Oh, okay. All right. Is that, that one's not in there? Well, it was a, uh, it says continued, but it doesn't continue. <laughs> so uh, what was the question? It was about, it was about how gravity stretches space and time in relation to distance. Okay. I'm guessing the question on that one is, is it possible that instead of the space between galaxies expanding, we are getting compacted, AG things are shrinking in size or that in some fashion, the light's getting slowed down as it passes through their mond. We did talk about that a little bit more in the dark matter technology episode. Without knowing this was the question, obviously, I can't only kind of sort of answer it. Um, but uh, we don't know if the universe is getting bigger or if the universe is getting smaller. That's one of those um, questions where it, it, it's the answer is effectively the same anyway. You could never tell if you're shrinking, everything else is getting bigger or not. It's, it's, how would you know? Um, on the other hand, is something causing light to slow down between galaxies, for instance, to cause that effect? Um, we don't know. Um, we haven't been outside of galaxies to test this stuff. I really hasn't just say no. We have no reason to suspect that's the case, though. We say things like, why is the universe expanding? Understand that this relies on the idea that the conservation of energy, the most fundamental physical law we have besides entropy, doesn't work. Right? For the universe to expand like that via dark energy means that in some fashion, even if it's not really, it's more of a global rather than local effect, conservation of energy is broken so it's not exactly something we just picked out of a hat one day we fought tooth and nail everybody didn't like this theory it's kind of one of those things where after we eliminate every other plausible option that's the only thing that was left over at that time and uh things like slow light were definitely discussed but we don't see any basis or reason for that to work and a lot of the things we do look at say probably not so i just realized that it's not january 31st no are you on the january 31st episode it's February 28th, it and is, that yeah. was why the live stream link was broke, because it says oh. January 31st. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I'm kind of like a month behind here. The ins and outs of the various problems. Now, wouldn't it really have puzzled everyone if it was February 29th? I mean, it could just get lost. Every four years, yeah. No, um, you know, <laughs> I'm glad I don't have that February 29th birthday. I guess most people put it on March 4th. Yeah, I guess so. If we ever have a kid on on Fe uh, February 29th, does that mean they only get old once every four years? They only get one birthday every four years, yeah. Well, I suppose that's a really nice one at that point. If you only give them a birthday for every four years, that's like, well, I want a pony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Say, <laughs> so, well, it's too late for this year. You could ask me again in four years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds sinister. It's, it's well, you know, it's all about effective parenting. <laughs> oh, oh, well, glad to know that ahead of time. Um, Eric Johansson, thank you for your um, super chat here. He says, if environmental and political concerns are disregarded, do you think it's feasible to create nuclear rocket engines that can take off from the Earth? Um, thermal, I mean, nuclear thermal rockets, I, I'm open to the idea of that, or even the uh, nuclear light bulb option. Um, I, I just kind of want to emphasize there's many different types of nuclear rockets. Um, one of them basically fires radioactive exhaust out the back end of the ship. I don't think that that will ever be legal. <laughs> and if that actually is legal, um, you know, definitely the post-apocalyptic world kind of scenario, 
uh, where you probably want to be getting yourself a mohawk and a dune buggy and uh, and recipes for having guests for dinner. Uh, it's not going to be a blizzard war. <laughs> uh, but as for nuclear thermal rockets, maybe. I don't think that that's ever been an option people are too fond of. And you can use nuclear power to get us into space. Um, you know, once you're in space, you can use it all you want out of the orbit of the Earth. But near us, which you hook a bunch of nuclear reactors up to a mass drive or a long launch rail or an active support structure, and you power things that way, and then you have a much more contained place for your uranium, which is good to keep contained. I love nuclear power, but it's not something I want flying over my house. <laughs> Speaking of flying over your house, I see somebody suggest maybe we need a space pony. I wonder if they do space seahorses. We did an episode on space whales. Um, That's true. And, and we were just talking about whale guns a moment ago. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, I see up on the screen we've got uh, the Killing Stars episode coming up on March 11th, and we have a question on starlifting mm -hmm. from Mercurian Brockstone. They've got a very long name. Anyway, he wants to know, if I start starlifting the iron out of the sun, how many Earth mass planets can I fit in the Earth's orbit, and why is no one talking about orbital rings? Uh, orbital rings, and this is the biggest one with that. Um, well, in terms of iron out of the sun, let's hit that first. There's about 27,000 Earth's worth, give or take, of mass that's not hydrogen or helium in the sun. Uh, iron should be one of the more plentiful of those, but off the top of my head, I don't know if that would be like 100 Earth mass worth or 1,000 Earth mass worth. Iron's a fairly plentiful isotope, um, but I think oxygen would make up the lion's share of that mass, and then carbon, nitrogen, and then I, I can't remember how many orders of magnitude drops off between like oxygen and iron. Um, but if you look up an elemental abundance chart, uh, just take 27,000 and then look at what oxygens is compared to iron and adjust accordingly. Um, as to orbital rings, the reason why they're not getting talked about much is, one, they're, they're really not that well known yet. And two, um, it's kind of like saying that I want to go settle um, the Oregon in 1822. And someone says, let's build ourselves... A big railroad out there, and say, well, build a big railroad to where? What city? There are no cities out there. It's not even a village. Or someone saying, I would like to open up a, you know, international airport in the middle of Nome, Alaska. Say, well, there's only like two or three people who go there on a given day. We don't need an international airport. Orbital rings are like that. There's a very heavy capital investment, and what they make cheap is mass motion of things in space. Uh, we have another prototype one. It's probably easier to do a lighter one when you've already done a few. Right now, we're not with the miniaturization stage, but the prototype stage. And I don't think we'd even want to be prototyping something like that till we were talking about moving at least a thousand people to and from space in a given year and similar amounts of cargo. That's when you can start prototyping it. Matt Van Grisven says, uh, "Oh, thank you, Matt, for your super chat." And he says, "Have you ever seen a red dwarf? And what do you think?" Have I ever seen a Red Dwarf, or have I seen the show Red Dwarf, does it say? Let's assume it's the show. Right. Well, assume for the moment it was a, one of the stars. No one has seen a Red Dwarf, because I don't think any are actually visible to the naked eye. <laughs> Maybe Proxima if you've got binoculars. So for the show Red Dwarf, I've seen the first couple episodes. Um, I don't know why, but every time I start watching Red Dwarf, I end up watching Blake 7 instead. I don't know which of the two qualifies as more dystopian, but when it comes to low-budget science fiction from the 70s and 80s from the BBC, they're both good. <laughs> uh, Johnny Wings, thank you for your super chat. He says, hey, Isaac, I love your channel. Can you tell us about your plans for the channel and any growth or developments, and what are your goals or plans for the coming year? 
Uh, theoretically, we'll have to start a new studio up in a few months, um, and I am hoping to find time to write a book uh, at some point this year, but that's been slow progress. Um, and I don't know if that's going to be on like mega structures or if it's going to be on Fully Paradox or even if I'll get in my ear to just write something fictional. But uh, Not just theoretically. If we're moving to a blueberry farm, then you have to have an office that accommodates, you know, eating blueberries and talking on the channel. <laughs> I don't know. Are there blueberries going to grow in space? Uh, we actually did that in the colonizing series. It's funny, you know, uh, the one that Sean asked me to do the conference in Mulch? The episode he wants to show it being advanced to have you do a Q&A on is that colonizing series episode where we talk about blueberry farming. Well, uh, see, they, they know that you're uh, wanting to <laughs> get into farming and farming blueberries, so they want to know if you can try them out on the moon. There we go. <laughs> uh, for a little bit of context, when he was wondering on that, uh, Sarah started a blueberry farm right before we got married and has been semi on hiatus this year, and we'll start it back up this year. So. <laughs> Um, let's see. What, Blueberry what pie. Here we again? come. <laughs> so in terms of the channel, um, we're studying a lot of stuff with Nebula right now with Standard. Uh, for context, Standard's the uh, guild network kind of thing that a bunch of us founded a few years back. Um, and uh, it's like real engineering's on it, for instance. Uh, but you've probably seen the bits of whenever we do curiosity stream we've been putting a lot in trying to expand that out that's been sucking up a lot of creative energy um doing like extended versions things like that for episodes um but i'd say probably the biggest one to try to do with the show is i'd like to do more live uh follow-up segments on the videos at the end of the main ones um as we saw a couple of those of late and not necessarily live but you know at least record like this kind of situation and it's everything's on hold while the plague's on, as we say. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, more live studio stuff, switching around, maybe starting some more work on the book, and probably trying to explore some of the options for uh, other formats such as YouTube. So mm -hmm. I do like YouTube. For those of us who are just talk about like me and other channels, said, well, we're not too happy with YouTube. That's why we don't really want to be strictly dependent on YouTube as our only you know place to put our videos out at. And so there's been a lot of effort by a lot of us to explore alternative platforms, and that's taken up a lot of industry effort of, of the last year or so. Uh, Ram Bam says that he and his dad used to watch uh, Blake 7 as well, long time ago. Oh, yeah. I think I might have showed you episode one of that, but it is, it, the guy has a poem. Uh, that's the thing I, I mean, notice his force with Blake 7 is the main character uh, has a, a giant poem. Very uh, <laughs> 70s show. Um, but. Uh, I guess we've time for one more question before we go to break. Yeah, well, let's uh, ask this question on life extension here. We have Will Cherry. Thank you for your donation, Will. He says, what is the odds for life extension in the next 50 years? And if it's not possible, what are your thoughts on freezing? Or would we have cybernetics by then? And uh, Cybernetics doesn't necessarily amount to life extension. Thank you, by the way, for the donations. And I know a couple of people have done Super Chat. Hopefully it's coming up on the screen when people are doing that. It is. But, uh, it's it, very been, impressive. Yeah. We try to get everyone's question that we can to one way or another, but sorry for those who are winning and skipped on that. Um, cybernetics does not necessarily offer life extension. Um, it probably would do a lot for letting you get for the long life and good health. Like if your heart's going bad, it's nice to be able to use something cybernetic, but I think that technologically speaking, more often than not, what we use is you know, just a cloned human heart or a reconditioned heart or a heart going on top of a pig's heart. Um, everybody wants a pig's heart. <laughs> <laughs> Such a strange thing to think that that's their closest relative for the purpose of organs. Um, anyway, um, 
Freezing is an option if you think that the technology is possible. I would tend to feel like if we haven't made big progress on it in the next 50 years, it might be that it turns out to be a lot harder to crack than we're thinking, in which case freezing might not help as much as one would hope. But uh, I would say that I, I give us 50-50 odds of having very significant life extension. I put the emphasis on very significant because we already have life extension. Uh, the number of people who live over 90 compared to when I was a little kid, let alone a century ago, is ridiculous. The number of people who break 100 is, is used to be one of those things where maybe one person in the town turned 100. Uh, now it's there are multiple people around having that birthday every year. Um, all medicine, as Aubrey de Grey likes to say, all medicine is life extension. So, uh, But if we're not making fast enough progress for you and me, maybe freezing is an option. So, uh, We'll go ahead and go to break, and we'll be back in just a minute. So we'll be on break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to get a drink and a snack, or get more questions in for part 2 of our live stream. While we're waiting, a couple episodes back we were looking at orbital bombardment, and I've gotten asked why we didn't spend much time talking about using asteroids as weapons. It's a very popular idea in science fiction, showing up in almost every major franchise like Star Trek, Star Wars, Stargate, Babylon 5, and many more, including most recently the stealth asteroid attack we see play out in Season 5 of The Expanse. However, we didn't focus on it too much in the episode and partially it's because we've looked at asteroids before, in our Asteroid Defense episode last year, but mostly because asteroids are not very good weapons. We could probably do an entire episode on the topic and maybe will at some point, but let's just detail the key bits during our break. First, any spacefaring civilization where folks can move around asteroids, it's one where they can also move around and place a lot of detection gear too. Almost every trick for hiding actions in space relies on either weaker detection gear or it all being at one single spot. If you want to give an asteroid a shove, one that could usefully damage Earth, then you're generally talking about having to give something in the vicinity of a trillion kilograms a change of velocity of a kilometer a second, and that would be a fairly modest asteroid of less than a kilometer across that just happened to be a near-Earth orbital path so that it only needed a minor shove. That's exactly the sort of asteroid folks most closely would monitor too, for a variety of reasons, not least being collision concerns. So the kinetic energy needed to shift a trillion kilograms a kilometer per second is on order of a billion billion joules, that's comparable to a couple hundred hydrogen bombs, and again that's assuming we're moving a relatively modest sized asteroid with a very precision and efficient push. This is not something you could do very stealthily, but the usual notion is that you'd aim your rocket flame in the shadow of the asteroid from whoever was looking at it, pointing away from the planet Earth for instance. Now a rocket flame that big is still going to get seen, as is a giant cone. This is literally what a comet is, but even if we assume it hid in the asteroid's shadow, it's only from that one angle, and the first and most obvious place to put your detection gear is out at places far from Earth able to watch those other angles. I should also note that while it's essentially a comet, it's a very bright one at that. Comets are just the dust and ice melting off a big icy rock, not a much more powerful rocket flame trying to seriously change its trajectory. The other thing to keep in mind is that in a spacefaring civilization, asteroids are seen as wandering money, someone owns them, especially the metallic ones considered ideal for use as a weapon. They are going to want to track the things and they are going to be watching for obvious tricks like someone grabbing the transponder they left on the surface of the asteroid and detaching it, not for fear of someone using it as a weapon, but an attempt to steal the asteroid. So hard physical checks by radar and telescope should be fairly common. Fundamentally, we want to use an asteroid as a weapon because it's dropping a mountain on someone with energy releases that exceed nuclear bombs. 
and we have to remember that means trying to move a mountain without anyone noticing, while using energy releases equivalent to nuclear bombs to do it. It's not subtle, and it's not something a spacefaring civilization is going to ignore. A mountain, full of money, that is not where it's supposed to be is going to result in folks looking for it with a lot of enthusiasm and determination, and the faster you want to move one the bigger the noise it will make so to speak. Hence they don't make for very good weapons. We'll get back to our show in just a moment but I want to thank everyone for their continued support on Patreon and all the wonderful episode ideas we had there in our recent poll, and if you'd like to help support the show you can do so on Patreon or by going to the Donate tab on our website, IsaacArthur.net. And now, back to our show. Alright, and we're back. Um, and by the way, for those who are seeing it, it says January 31, I guess it didn't get updated. Uh, we're kind of adjusting to this new system for Streamlabs OBS. Uh, we we're trying to go by Streamlabs OBS, not its other acronyms. Slobs is the new live streaming software we're using, and I'm getting kind of used to it. So, uh, back to your questions. Well, Flax decided he wanted to make an appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we have a, a question here from Twilight Mists. Thank you for the super chat, Twilight. And they say, I love your channel. You've repeatedly said that the IR signature of a Dyson swarm can't be hidden, but hypothetically, couldn't you direct all of that energy into a shell of black holes? I'm almost wondering if I should just put him up on my lap so he's not walking around by the tripod. Um, this has been happening a lot. I don't know if you noticed when we did cam when I had David swing the camera around last time, I had the clever thought to put a cat door into my office so my cats wouldn't be scratching at my door to get in when they wanted in, and now they can just kind of walk in freely all they I, want. I think he's going to sit yeah. there and watch because he's very interested in your answer to the question about yeah. <laughs> whether or not you could direct the energy into the shell of a black hole. Hey, how come you put me on the screen? I'm not on the screen. This is It just popped up with cat. me. <laughs> um, there's a time lag on your side. So this is Flex. Alright, talking about black holes real quick. Um, if you try to direct energy into a black hole, it's obviously going to go in there. I think what people tend to forget is that a black hole is not just something that sucks up random energy. When a photon, for instance, is going into a black hole, if it starts off infrared, it's not going to arrive infrared. It's going to be blue shifting the whole way. We do not know for certain that black holes don't violate the laws of thermodynamics, but we tend to assume that they do not. The major reason why we don't say for sure is we can't absolutely rule it out yet. So it's not really one of those things where we think they might violate thermodynamics so much as we're not 100% positive that they do not. Um, everything in nature should give off radiation. Black holes give off radiation in their own way. Um, and the idea is, can I take all that radiation and can I bounce it down into a black hole? Hypothetically, yeah, you could maybe be able to do that. You could maybe surround your civilization with infrared reflective meals that were parabolic dishes that just bounce all the light down into a black hole, into a sequence of meals and lenses. You're not going to hide yourself completely doing something like that, and you're not going to believe that you would. Right? That is not a walking way to hide yourself because that's not going to hide you from anyone as big as you all. Right? They will be able to still see the various little bits that are leaking out from that. Uh, and it's not going to be an energy-efficient process that lets you reuse that energy either. But there may be some aspects of black holes that kind of let us get around the laws of thermodynamics, but probably not. It's still a popular idea for why that might be the case, though. It doesn't hide you gravitationally either. The Don Javon says, Could we colonize pulsar planets or planets? Planets orbiting a black hole. Planets. 
black hole planets, I guess that would be. Can we colonize planets that are orbiting a black hole or a pulsar? I noticed the Flax got away. He doesn't like being on the camera, so then he's going to go leave, maybe. <laughs> there was no reason why you couldn't colonize a planet that was around a black hole or a pulsar. Um, but you got to keep in mind these things tend to be fairly radioactive objects. When a supernova goes off, it's going to wreck all the planets that are actually in the habitable zone. There might be some remnants left over, or the bigger ones, they'll be outways. Because supernovas are very powerful, but planets are held together pretty good. And it's got a death star and everything. Um, whatever's left over is not very bright. Pulsars are nowhere near as bright as the, as, as the weakest of normal stars. Right? And black holes are obviously not very bright at all. So these planets are going to be frozen and hit by gamma radiation every time a random particle falls by them. They're not places you really want to be thinking about colonizing a planet, but there's no reason you couldn't terraform them if you really, really wanted to. Just got to be willing to shield them a lot. Um, more likely, you take them apart, use a lot of them for radiation shielding, and live inside artificial habitats that you made out of them. Igor Briskin says, what is the future of salt water, like nuclear isotope-infused water engines, in the next 50 years? You know, when it comes to anything involving nuclear fission, I, 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 I don't even like to kind of guess about what its developmental use on Earth is going to be because first you've got that, you've, you've got two types of resistance to it, the irrational and the rational kind. Some folks are a little too resistant to it for the wrong reasons, but they're, you know, they're well inside the zone of what's you know, legitimate and so on. And other people who are just convinced it's going to kill them, period, no matter how safe we make it. I never know how much to factor that lateral category into guessing how popular nuclear is going to get. Um, so we might make one that's really efficient, really good, uh, has no carbon footprint, is a tenth the price of normal electricity, and people still won't use it. I, I don't know. Um, we also have to keep in mind that on the more rational side of things, it's entirely possible we might just get a bit of a power supply. Um, you know, you can't beat nuclear, but then the sun's nuclear, so you can't really beat a cheap meal and some solar panels potentially either. Uh, I do think there's a very big role that nuclear can be in, whether we're talking small modular reactors, SMOs, or any other variations too. Um, but how that will get filled up in the next 50 years is just your guess as good as mine. We have another question here from Matt333. What kind of habitable exoplanet would be more suitable to humans? A smaller one with O... I'm assuming this oxygen, 7 to 1 Earth mass, or a super Earth with 3 to 4 times the mass of Earth? And can you explain this, please? Um, okay, so the idea being here, are we talking about a planet that's maybe 70 to 100% Earth's mass versus a super Earth that's 3 to 4 times the mass of Earth? Um, we're going to find a lot of planets out there that are very close to Earth's mass, but most of them are not going to be, right? So the question is, is something that's lighter than Venus but heavier than Mars more habitable than something that's three or four times as massive as Earth? Um, and then it kind of depends on what you mean by habitable. I would guess that it's not going to take a lot of effort to terraform a super-Earth that's actually very oceanic if it's got land at all. And then it doesn't have to have land. You can that's you could have submarine extraction of resources and people living in giant ships. Um, but... Uh, I would say that you probably have an easier time terraforming one that was the 7.7 to 1 Earth mass region. Just because it's harder to maintain an atmosphere in the long run there. But in the long run, uh, you're talking millions and millions of years. And if you can terraform it in 
you know, tens of thousands of years, then you can replace this atmosphere with a few million years if you need to. So I would say probably easier to set up and terraform a civilization on a planet that's a little bit less massive than Earth and this three or four times as massive. We have a super chat here from Joachim Heatman. How heavy can a space station become before it affects Earth like a tidal water? And what technologies do we currently lack to start mining space? Thanks. Can you give that to me one more time? <laughs> he said, how heavy can a space station become before it affects the Earth like a tidal water? Uh, that's actually a decent enough question because it depends on how much. Um, tidal forces... The moon obviously has a pretty big effect on us, but to have the same gravitational force as the moon has, an object that's 200 miles away as opposed to 200,000, as in the case of the moon, or you know, kilometers, uh, would need a millionth of mass to be pulling the same force, because it's a thousandth of the distance. That's not quite how tidal forces work, it's not quite inverse square, but think of it just straight gravitational force for the moment. And say, wow, something that's a millionth the mass of the moon, that's in orbit, in low Earth orbit, would have quite a lot of tidal force. And say, well, was an only cylinder a millionth the mass of the moon? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the moon's mass is around 10 to the 23rd kilograms, right? Or around 10 to the 20th tons. We usually think of a O'Neill station as being, you know, in the low billions of tons. So you're talking about an order of magnitude difference there of, uh, what, 100 billion? So a McKendry cylinder, the, the big daddy of the O'Neill cylinder, probably would begin to have a noticeable effect on Earth if it was in low to medium orbit, but still pretty minimal. Um, and then it depends on how thick it is, but McKendry cylinder mass to have any real effect. Gulagus, the new Gulag, says, Isaac, do you have backup copies of all your videos? I would hate for the algorithm to shut you down and lose all of that content forever. This must be in re reference to your comment on YouTube earlier. Um, I think we're actually on BitChain, but uh, I know of at least three or four audience members who do, or at least have mentioned in the past they downloaded every video and, and kept a copy around. Um, I do have copies probably of every video. Uh, I have three or four versions of some of them in some cases, because um, I tend to be bad about purging the uh, edit versions. Like, typically these videos, one of the they can come out a couple days early on Nebula, is they come out a week to two weeks early uh, for our crew could see them up on YouTube as unlisted videos and we go through and find all the typos and then I said if I want to fix the typos like there's a typo in next week's video and one single typo with two letters over your age and I'm thinking I'm not sure if I care enough to spend three hours fixing that one typo uh, but uh and so your wife who reads and edits things cringes yeah every typo is worth fixing keith, every typo <laughs> keith blockus and jerry go and he both probably recognizes editors they tend to be the ones who catch all the typos on the videos and if there's a lot of them or if you go back and change something else i'll go fix them but in this case it's like if it's a missing period or two letters rearranged i tend to be a bit more relaxed but there's copies of pretty much every video out there if one or two of them's gotten lost the scripts are out there i I know it sounds weird, but if you're the one who's actually making episodes or making a series or making a book, you tend to be a lot less attached to the originals than a lot of your audience is because to you, they all have three or four different draft versions. Uh, so, but yes, there's backups. Don't worry about it. Dan the Warlock. Hey, I was so impressed by your video on Hive Minds. I was wondering about if it could be possible to even create one with technology. And if yes, humanity would be truly united, correct? I, that's such an interesting way of calling it united. Uh, uh, if you have, I mean, 
if we're talking like a Borg-style hive mind from Star Trek, then that's no unity any of us really want to be part of. Um, I was thinking of like the example of Gaia from Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, where it's a planet-wide hive mind, where it's not just the people, it's like the animals, and even to a limited degree, the plants and the rocks, and... Um, I don't want to be part of one. The main character for that, Golden Trevise, doesn't want to be part of one either. Um, I don't know why anyone would want to be part of a, a hive mind of that variety. But as to a networked intelligence, that's a little different. We are already networked intelligences to a limited degree. It just depends on how, you know, that line between your personness and somebody else's personness is getting out of ploy. Would we be unified? I suppose so. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing, though. <laughs> it depends on how it's done. Suet Kumar says, can we colonize globular cu clusters? Um, there's no reason why we couldn't, but the, you're getting kind of hesitant to really say at that point that you'd want to do natural planets. Uh, for those who don't know, a globular cluster is usually a, a group of order stars, but it's pretty packed. There's a key thing there is it's very packed with stars. They're, you know, It's not spacing every four light years. It might be spacing every four light months or even less. Um, they're they are old, big systems full of light. Um, I don't know that I might be putting plants there, especially since being able to go red giant, the case of red globular clusters. Um, could you actually fill the area out with things like space habitats? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the biggest trick is planets are always going to be a little bit sensitive to radiation lighting beyond what you'd have for if I have a metal thick of dirt, steel, and lead treat me in it because I'm inside a space habitat. So, yes. But probably not the place you want to be terraforming plants a lot. The Game Crasher, the Master Gamer, says, Have you heard of the channel Astronauts X? Apparently they're saying that essentially faster than light travel is not only possible but necessary for the universe to function. Um, I haven't heard of their channel. Um, so I don't know what they actually said on that. For all I know, they're making a reference that you actually... well. Uh, we'd say fast light travel is impossible, and then we'd turn around and say that almost everything in the universe that we can see is moving away from us faster than the speed of light. And so that's interesting. So you can't go faster than light, but almost everything in the universe is going away from us faster than light. So, well, yes, that's how that whole expansion of the universe thing works. Um, so they might be talking about it in that kind of context. Otherwise, I, I don't know. It might be some new theory they're familiar with. I don't know how you'd ever get faster than light travel between two places to work like that, though. Um, there's a lot of theories. Hmm. They all seem to rely on things that don't exist, like negative matter, which, again, negative matter looks great on people, but so does a negative bucket of water, a negative $1 bill, things like that. I don't know how you would hand people these things. How do you hand somebody a negative gallon of water or a negative liter or a negative pound? So if we do develop faster-than-light travel, Brian wants to know if we could travel far enough away from our planet to look back and witness every single event in history at real time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you can do this impossible thing, then you have the ability to do that. Although I should point out that it's really hard to see things on planets far away. Uh, keep in mind, all spy satellites are not on the moon. You can't see the surface of the moon. You can't see the moon lander uh, with the biggest telescopes we have on this planet. All spy satellites are like 100 miles up in the air. Uh, 100, 200 kilometers, right? 160 kilometers, in that case. Um, they're not high. They're not far away. They are a thousand times closer to us than the moon is. Alternatively, if you want to see the history of the Earth from where the moon is, that's through, like a half, second and a half ago, one and a half seconds back one time. Right? You want to see four light years away, you talk about being able to see the detail of a human 
on the surface of a planet through the clouds, through all the distortion, through all the other things, with a telescope four light years away, then you'd be able to talk about a telescope that has actually got a lens bigger than a planet. And we discussed those options in bigger telescopes, but uh, that's still taking four light years back. You probably have pretty good history recording by the time you're, you know, building planet-sized telescopes. So what you mean is, I want to see 100,000 years back or a million light years back. And say, okay, then you need to be talking about building telescopes who have lenses bigger than galaxies in most cases. And I don't think that you'd really be able to see even then. It's just not something you should be able to pull off. But it's theoretically possible if you can do those two impossible things. <laughs> Patrick McCarg says, over time I've had time to think about the colonization of space via O'Neill cylinders and the like, and he feels that it's a better option for colonizing planets, especially regarding the availability of resources. You've touched on this a little bit before, but would you like to add any comments? Um, I mean, myself, it's, it's, that's, I agree. I think there's always going to be desire for some people to have the classic physical planet, uh, I think there'll be people who want to do shell wards too, and there's room for that. You know, artificial shell wards are definitely a possibility using if you can either control dark matter or you just have a lot of hydrogen you want to store around because the shell ward doesn't use up that much mass of the rocky, hard, expensive kind. And you do want to be storing mass around, so why not take advantage of it? You know, if your economy runs on black hole power sources, you might as well stick a planet around it. It makes it easier to gouge your vault. Uh, and black holes make very good vaults. Um, but, uh, as to why you would ever colonize or terraform a planet, people will. I don't doubt that, but it's a good way to stake a claim to it, because what you're really doing in this case is saying, I'm landing on this planet that represents like 1% of the available mass in the solar system, and it's mine. And if you guys want it, you have to you know, take it from our civilization. It's a, not a bad position to be in from an economic or political perspective, I suppose, but um, it's always going to be easier to do it on your solar. Always going to be a lot mass cheaper, too. Hidden says, how does location within a galaxy affect star or planet formation, matter distribution, and more broadly, the likelihood of intelligent life? How does star formation... Location within a galaxy affect star or planet formation, matter distribution, and more broadly, the likelihood of intelligent life? There's still a lot of debate about exactly what the metallicity of the early galaxy looked like and what its distribution is, but the... The closer you are to the center of the galaxy, the younger the stuff tends to be. The further out you are, the older it tends to be, on average, very loosely speaking. This does not mean stars are, are formed in the center of the galaxy and work their way out. Uh, Metallicity-wise, the more supernovas you have in the area, the more recently that is, the higher the concentration of metallic objects. But for the most part, uh, other than the very early universe, which you don't have a good image for yet, the first four or five billion years, you really should have had the option to have rocky planets of Earth mass almost anywhere in the galaxy. Some places obviously more distributed than others, and that one you would have to talk to an astronomer on because I do not know what the current models are saying about um, metallicity of, of systems based on distance or, or nebular clusters of that period. So pulsar, Al- <laughs> Okay, well, speaking of pulsar, Albert has a question. Would non-carbon life forms be able to survive on a pulsar planet? And if so, what type of biochemistry would be best suited to survive the heavy radiation? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, hmm. I can't answer the first question because we don't know what non-carbon-based life actually looks like. So we couldn't say that it could live there or couldn't live there. Um, nothing should like radiation that's based on chemistry. So if we're talking about non-carbon-based life, but still assuming chemistry, there's presumably certain chemistries that would be a little bit more resistant to radiation. 
but if it's ionizing radiation, if it's your hard UV, your x-ray, your, your gamma, the stuff you get off of pulsars, it's going to rip molecules apart. It's going to just damage anything sophisticated based on chemistry. After that, it's hard to say. You know, maybe something that was silicon-based but didn't actually really go for chemistry so much as a crystalline structure or a semiconductor structure. They might be able to do it. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, so chemistry-wise, they really shouldn't be a set of this really more, more well-suited to those kind of systems. It just wouldn't, shouldn't be a place you'd expect life to be able to evolve using chemistry. DJ Brower wants to know what your thoughts on interplanetary cyclers and how feasible they would be in the next 30 years. Do oh, you feasible have... right now. Um, okay, you know... uh, as a part of that, <laughs> do you have thoughts on Elon Musk and his 1 million people on Mars by 2050? I love that, man. He's, uh, every time I think he's got an idea that's completely crazy, that's the one that works out. Um, I have a personal rule where Elon Musk is concerned that dates back to me being one of the people who thought SpaceX was never going to go anywhere. Uh, I don't take for given that Elon Musk can pull things off because he fails more often than he succeeds at things like this. Uh, and yet he has a success rate here that uh, even Thomas Edison would find impressive. Um, so he might be able to pull that off. Might's know. a big point, though, because Mr. Dodo <laughs> has a good point here. He says, considering that we don't have a permanent base on the next rock along from us, the moon, what are the chances of us colonizing another planet or interstellar within the next 1,000 generations? We could colonize Mars in this decade if we wanted to bad enough and we're willing to throw enough money at it and we're willing to take some risks with using some prototype engines. Right? It's, it's, it can be done. Um, we could set one up on the moon, too, if you were willing to just throw money at it. Um, and the thing is, why would you need a million people there, though? If you're just trying to do the get-your-eggs-out-of-one-basket scenario, you can do that with a 1,000 people and an awful lot of freezers full of... Uh, um, genetic material <laughs> and uh i mean i would love to be around here in 2050 when i guess i'd be what 70 i would love to be here in 2050 and say yeah i couldn't believe it but musk was right and there's a million people on on mars so um, we have another question related that. to that million people on mars someone <laughs> says uh, wouldn't that be death by gravity we don't know that or mars by lack gravity. of gravity yeah I mean, see our Life on Low Gravity Planets episode or the more recent Zero Gravity Civilizations episode. Is, but what we discussed there is we don't know what low gravity does to people. We have, just don't know. We know what zero gravity or microgravity does to people. Um, but we've never put people in low gravity with, a, with exactly 12 exceptions. Right? We've had 12 men who walked on the moon for three days or so each. Right? Uh, bookended on those trips, they were undergoing high acceleration and no gravity. Right? So for the three days of low gravity, each of those experiences, we have no data because it was bookended by zero gravity and high acceleration gravity and re-entry. And they were in perfect health, and it was three days. We do not know that 12% gravity like the moon has is in any way harmful to humans. We think it probably is not healthy, but we don't know. And there's a lot of guesswork on that. Mars is three times higher gravity and a little under half what we have. That might turn out to be perfectly fine. It might be one of those things where you don't even really need to do extra exercise. But we would expect it to be causing some fluid issues, causing some damage to bone structure from density. But it might not be anything that we can't easily fix. So Thunder Blitz says, if we found a way to produce wormholes cheaply, could a Type 3 civilization exist by reducing data travel time? Sure. Uh, 
going back to the warm horse thing, if you can make Stargate style warm horse, um, then yes, you could absolutely run yourself a galactic empire. Um, you'll see some examples like, well, like Stargate or like Peter Hampton's Carmel Saga, um, for just a few examples of really good wormhole-based galaxy-wide civilizations. Uh, but there's a galaxy, there's a wormhole in science fiction, which is a flat disc that you can walk through and step out to the other side of the universe. And there's a wormhole in actual mathematical modeling, which is something that weighs several hundred solar masses. That, that's the basic wormhole of the original model. It weighed more than several hundred stars stuffed together. And that was making a gateway big enough for a person or a ship to get through. We have some concepts where you might be able to do it with like a single Jovian mass. And some others that fool around with negative mass that might let you do a bit less than that. But these are still gigantic things. And um, they, they are not necessarily going to, even if you get them to walk, really be ideal for casual commerce and communication. I was just reading through some of the comments here. We have uh, Algorn Dianza says, Isaac Arthur, love the channel. It makes me happy seeing you and your wife working together. It's so cute. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> when I, I think... actually am able to switch the camera to my wife, uh, it's uh, probably <laughs> helps. <laughs> um, that wasn't a question. That was a comment. It was just a comment. Yeah. It's awesome. I, I do have a couple more questions here, though, right before we sign off for the afternoon. I think we probably should soon. <laughs> okay. Mr. Kavinsky says, hey, Arthur, if humanity and aliens come to blows, wouldn't the Oort uh, be perfect spot for them to gather resources and strength? Maybe even weaponize the asteroids that barely pass by the Earth. The Oort. The Oort cloud? O-O-R-T. Oort cloud. Well, they don't say cloud, but that probably is what they meant. Um, uh, if aliens are going to attack us, the Oort Cloud would be a perfect place for them to land if they were trying to be stealthy about it. Um, the problem is right now, if aliens were coming to the system and they wanted to attack us, they, it's not where they would stop, it's where they would dump their garbage out. Um, if you're traveling between solar systems at any fraction of speed of light, the best way to deal with a hostile planet that you're traveling to is to slow down slightly right after you kick your garbage out the airlock in the direction of that planet. And then wait patiently before the plant just has the surface get obliterated by the garbage you kicked out the side. Then you can invade. Um, the Oort Cloud would be a good place to sneak a little self-replicating item in. You could go hide inside the ice where it would be fairly cool and eat the inside of a lot of comets, a lot of cometary bodies, things like that. Build up a nice sized fleet and then you could rain steel down on the, uh, the planet below uh, inside that solar system. So it's not a bad place to go because you would have problems seen there. Uh, so we got time for another question? All right. We're going to end with one from Atlas. He says, Isaac, could Batman beat the Predator in a fight? I mean, Batman beats Superman in a fight. <laughs> oh, and Schwarzenegger. Well, I mean, actually, I don't think it would be fair to say, oh, and Schwarzenegger beat the Predator in a fight. Uh, that was kind of more like survived a fight with the Predator. Um... I would say Batman would, would beat the Predator, yes. Um, because oh, Schwarzenegger was awesome, but the, the Predator was... You know, Batman's cool. Um, yes, Batman would win. <laughs> so, there we have an official. <laughs> on that note, we'll go ahead and sign off for today. We will see you all on Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net. 
Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.